This episode is brought to you by Catholic Travel Center, proud partner with America Media for six years, hosting their pilgrimages to Ireland, Italy, Spain, and the Holy Land. Catholic Travel Center is the customized group pilgrimage specialist, serving the Catholic community for nearly 30 years. To organize your organization's next pilgrimage, contact Catholic Travel Center at gocatholictravel.com. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Good yes. to be with you, Olga. Likewise. Do you guys enjoy your Memorial Day weekends? Yeah. Um, long weekends are great. Um mm-hmm. Tuesdays after long weekends, yeah, not so great. Yeah, no. it's such a struggle today. I know, but we're here. We're enthusiastic. What are we drinking, Zach? Not to be enthusiastic, but maybe a little sad. Uh, so, Father Eric Sundrup, last week's guest, uh, continuing faith formator, uh, he's left America Media um, for good now, and he gifted us with uh, Journeyman Distillery's Featherbone Bourbon, a bottle he had that he could not take back to Cincinnati with him the land of bourbon. So he's gifted us that. And so we cheers this in his honor. Yes. To you, Eric. Cheers. All right. Who are we talking to this week, Olga? This week, we're talking with Onita Estes Hicks. She's a social justice advocate and cradle Catholic who in 2004 discovered that she was a descendant of one of the 272 individuals sold by the Jesuits who ran Georgetown in 1838. Yes. And this, as you probably can imagine, was uh devastating discovery for her as a, as you mentioned, a lifelong Catholic. Um, so we talked to Anita a bit about what that was like, what it did to her family and what it's been like to work with the university since then. But first it's time for signs of the times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week. So you don't have to, what's our first story, Olga? So there was some new correspondence that was obtained by Crux, which confirms that the Vatican placed restrictions on the ex-Cardinal Theodore McCarrick and Just to kind of recap, he is the former Archbishop of Washington who was accused of sexually abusing minors and seminarians, and he was laicized earlier this year by Pope Francis. Right. So these these are letters um, and emails that were sent between 2008 and 2017 um, between McCarrick and various uh, high-level Vatican officials um, in which he makes mention of these restrictions that were placed on him. He was not supposed to travel um, without Vatican permission, um, and he was uh, expected to resign from all of his roles at the Vatican and at the Bishop's Conference. Yeah, these were placed on him in 2008. and So by Pope Benedict. Yeah, but it doesn't. it's not clear what the restrictions mm-hmm. were for necessarily. He mentions denying uh, some of the allegations made against him. Um, and it's also not clear why the former cardinal continued to travel. Uh, he was... It appears to be instrumental in some of the talks between the Vatican and China. And so if there were the restrictions, he mentions knowing about them, but he was not necessarily following them. Right. And why this is significant now is it kind of reveals who knew what when. And so one of the things we've learned from these letters um, is that it seems pretty clear that Donald Worrell, the former archbishop of Washington, D.C., was aware of these restrictions, which he has said he, he knew nothing about. This does give us some new information, but it's still not clear exactly, like, who knew what, like, especially Pope Francis. Um, it's not clear. It's clear that McCarrick was traveling 
while Pope Francis was Pope. Um, but then Pope Francis also, you know, immediately took action against him when he was investigated for sex abuse. Right. And there was a new interview that was released uh, this week that appears to have been conducted before these uh, new letters about McCarrick were reported on that where Pope Francis says that he knew nothing about McCarrick. And this is, um, it was an interview with a Mexican journalist, and these were his first direct comments about the, the matter. He says he knew nothing, obviously nothing, nothing. Right. And this is kind of news because last year, Pope Francis was actually accused by Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, who alleged that Pope Francis knew about the allegations against McCarrick. And almost a year later, Pope Francis is explicitly renouncing these claims. Right. And he and his silence, I think, has been troubling to some people. These, mm-hmm. you know, here was a archbishop making a very serious uh, allegation against Pope Francis, saying that he knew about McCarrick and still took him on as a trusted advisor. Um, and to, you know, just have that kind of hanging in the air and the Pope not saying anything was a I found troubling. Yeah, he, the Pope mentioned that he wanted to trust journalists to uncover a lot of this. And so this is an instance where journalists are following the facts where they lead. But we still have a lot of questions. Right. What's our next story, Zach? So Pope Francis is named an expert in Islam as president of the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue. Yes. So Bishop Miguel Ayuso has a degree in Arabic and Islamic studies and has spent time uh, working and teaching in Sudan and Egypt. And this is really significant because it just kind of shows Pope Francis's continued commitment to fighting Islamophobia and really promoting interfaith dialogue. Yeah. And this is important is because we've talked about on the show with other guests that there's a lot of misinformation about Muslims that continues to spread in Catholic circles. What's our next story, Ashley? Archbishop Wilton Gregory has been installed as the new Archbishop of Washington, D.C. He is the first uh, black archbishop in the diocese, um, which has a very thriving black Catholic Mm -hmm. population. Yeah, this is really encouraging because while the black Catholic community in the United States is very small, it's about three or four percent in Washington, D.C., they make up 15 percent of Catholics. And this is something that's interesting. I just learned this. There are more historically black Catholic churches in D.C. than any other diocese in the United States besides Lafayette in Louisiana. Yeah. And in the political realm, the last four D.C. mayors are all black Catholics or were educated in Catholic schools. Yeah, I had no idea that that was the case. And this is important because you hope that this community um, can finally see some representation of people who look like them and have their experience in their leadership. Right. And for our last story, we're bringing back Being Frank, the segment of our show where Pope Francis tells us what to do. What is it, Olga? So Pope Francis recently told young people that tourism and travel should be less about consumerism and racking up experiences and more about encountering other people. I feel like he was calling out uh, my Instagram feed a little bit, (laughs) right? Like less about quote unquote experiences. Yeah. He means grams. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. So he he made these statements to Italy's youth tour center uh, a couple of weeks ago, but we thought we would bring it back now as we enter the summer months where we'll all be traveling around um, and getting our our Insta shots. Getting the grams on. He said, (laughs) if I visit a city, it's important that I know not just the monuments, but also that I realize the history behind it, how the people live, what challenges they're trying to face. 
You guys travel a lot. Is this something you'd like try to stick to? I definitely do. I think it, this is actually something I struggle with because I do go to other countries and I'm like, this is my first time here. If, you know, let's say Paris, let me visit the Eiffel Tower so that I can take this picture and say that I meant that I visited this place. Um, but it's definitely something I try to be more conscious of when I visit other places and just really stepping out of my New York Bronx box and like encountering people who are very different from me. I think it's a really difficult thing because on the one hand, you obviously don't just want to be walking around taking photos of pictures and monuments. But on the other hand, it's sort of presumptuous, uh, depending on where you're coming from and what privilege you have as a traveler to just sort of force locals to give you cultural experience. <laughs> right. And so figuring out ways in which to do that are really tough. And there are, you know, you can do your best to spend your dollars wisely in places that are support run by locals and not just in the tourist parts of town. I think you can do your best to seek out educational things. But it, it's tough if you're just rolling through a place, you know, for 24 hours and you're just trying to hit the highlights. I, that's something I know I struggle with a lot. Yeah, th this is totally going to sound like a humble brag. So I, I apologize if that's the case. <laughs> but I know when I visited Abu Dhabi a few years ago, I was very... It's a very religious, much more religious and traditional country than like what we experience here. And I remember getting there and being like, oh, you can't drink. You can't really like if you're with a partner, you can't really show public displays of affection. And I remember being really uncomfortable by that and then thinking like, how could they do this? This is so repressive. And then I realized, no, 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 you're just being this American who's unwilling to like just embrace the culture you're in. Um, and that's one of the highlights of my trip, just kind of like seeing how everyone else just lived out their lives and their faith in a way that I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, I think about my time. I went to the Holy Land with my family in 2012. Um, and like, of course, like seeing all the like sites like to see of Galilee and the Holy Sepulchre is like amazing. But they it is they do have a touristy element and you are you know you're waiting in lines and you're taking pictures um but the thing i remember from that trip like most vividly it was visiting this this catholic elementary school run by uh the franciscans um and just like hanging out with the kids meeting this incredible priest um and learning about the work he's doing to build bridges between the catholic and muslim community there um and like that that's just like the kind of thing that you can only experience if you are yeah. open to encounter. This is a good point. And it's one thing that I've always found super helpful is actually just very practical. There's probably a Catholic church where uh, wherever you're, you're traveling. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've always found is of a quote unquote authentic experience is seeing how people worship in mm -hmm. a certain space, mm -hmm. right? Like it's it, once familiar to me and as a Catholic, but totally new and not necessarily, you know, if you go to mass at one of the world's best known churches, it's not quite the same. But if you just go to like a little yeah. parish, mm -hmm. you can really get a taste of it. And you probably have to go if it's a Sunday anyway. <laughs> All right. So listeners, tell us about your travel plans for this summer. And if, you, if you're going to take Pope Francis's advice to heart. Joining us in studio today is Dr. Onita Estes-Hicks. She is a social justice advocate and cradle Catholic from New Orleans. Through her family's association, Descendants Ascending, she works on addressing questions of racial reconciliation in the Catholic Church. Welcome to Jesuitical, Onita. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. We're very excited that you're joining us. So, first question. In 2004, years before the New York Times published its report on the Georgetown sale, you discovered that you were a descendant of one of the 272 enslaved persons sold by the Jesuits who ran the university in 1838. 
How did you find out about that and what did it feel like to discover that? We were preparing for a family reunion to take place in New Orleans in 2004. And we began doing research on um, my father's side of the family. We were trying to get to the why we happened to be in Louisiana. That was mm-hmm. the beginning of it all. And uh, Judy Rifle, a genealogist out of Baton Rouge, had done some research, and she remembered that we had a large number of people coming in from Maryland at a certain stage, and let's see if we can trace your family back to that group. And so we discovered through a professional genealogist that, in fact, my father's people had uh, been part of the Jesuit slave sale. So my niece began doing some additional research, and somehow we discovered the name of the priests who had negotiated the sale. At that point, we didn't know they were Jesuits. Mm-hmm. And uh, You just knew that someone in the Catholic Church yeah. had been a part of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, I did the old-fashioned thing is to Google. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it turned out that uh, Father Mullody had been at one point uh, a leading Jesuit connected to Georgetown University and the Jesuits in Maryland. And so that's how it all began to unravel for us. We were determined to do additional research at that time, but then Katrina came. And so that threw our lives off for about five or six years. We were busy. And about 2010, we did get back to looking at where our family had been, what had happened to them. And we've sort of been piecing things together from that point on. But we were, as you say, well informed of this long before the New York Times piece came out. Can you going back to 2004? Do you remember what that first initial reaction was when you you first learned this news? Well, it was like an an attack on everything we knew about ourselves. Uh, we had grown up in a small parish in New Orleans, where my father had been a founding member of the parish. It was more a home than just a church. We attended the school. We were close to the priests and close to the nuns. And so our whole identity was wrapped around being not only cradle Catholics, but cultural Catholics. New Orleans is a very Catholic city, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you see. So it was not just the issue of our being involved in the church and the school, but we had holidays together. We spent a great deal of time with the Catholic Youth Organization. We attended youth events at Xavier University, which is still remains the only primary black Catholic university in this country. So our whole being, in a way, was invested in Catholicism. And it um, it took us some time to really come to some sense of who we really were. Yeah. How did how did it change your relationship to your own personal faith or or the Catholic community? I don't think it had anything to do with destroying faith because my my family is a faith-based family. But our sense of Catholicism was radically changed. And the more we discovered about the Jesuit slave sale, the more we began to feel uh, just absolutely betrayed, absolutely uh, bereft in many, many ways. And there were some stories that were very unpleasant. We were just very, very disturbed that once the 
slaves had landed in Louisiana. While they had been promised to have a chapel, we discovered that that was not the case. They were left there to sort of work things out on their own. So our resolution, because we were spending tremendous time trying to figure out what was this and who was that, and so at some point we simply decided that we really wanted to go back to Maryland, go to the plantations where our ancestors had been. And so we eventually did decide that we were going to inaugurate what we called a sacred sites pilgrimage. And so we, some 40-something of us, just took off and landed. Us being, us being members of your members, family? Members of my family, uh, yeah, ranging in age from like five, eight, five <laughs> years old to 70-something years mm-hmm. old. We just all decided, look, we have to see this because our lives were just so threatened by some, you know, you, you, you think of yourself as something and then you, when this came up. Did you ever question whether or not you should be Catholic? You, you mentioned earlier that you felt that your faith was radically changed. Was there ever a moment where you thought about leaving the faith? No. No, uh, I never thought about leaving the faith, but leaving the church was something else, you see. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it was complex in that sense. But it never dawned on me that I was anything other than a Catholic. I mean, we grew up with a, a heavy sense of ourselves, the Catholic ritual, and it was like Catholicism was really the, the grounds of my own being anyway. So however we had to work that through, For us, it had to be in the context of the Catholic Church, finding out how that had happened and what what it led to. I'm struck by how much you're using the we pronoun in your answers, in the sense that it sounds like going through all of this as a family was like a central part of the experience. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it was. Uh huh. And uh, my family had been very active in the Catholic Church. Uh, three of my sisters had received the Archbishop's Merit uh, Award for service to the parishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as much of it was the historical sense as is what the sense of Catholicism, this is where we were rooted. And so it became uh, almost uh, a puzzle. Uh, how are we going to piece this together? And so well, I had one branch of the family in Spokane, Washington, another groups in Louisiana, groups in California. And at one point I said, why don't we just go back to Maryland and talk to the Jesuits? <laughs> <laughs> what were those conversations like? Well, it was very interesting. Uh, we did get in touch with... Uh, this is before Georgetown starts its own reconciliation project. You you reached out to the Jesuits? Uh, this was about the same time, about the same time. And I just simply sent an email to the Georgetown University saying that we are connected to Nace and B.B. Butler with the names of our ancestors. Of, and I read that uh, Nace, Nace is short for Ignatius, so he's literally named yeah. after Ignatius. Uh, and I'll come... Uh, Tori, because that's yeah. another part of how embedded we were with yeah. with the Jesuits. So we just said we want to come back. Uh, we want to know where the plantations are. Uh, we want to see where our ancestors were. And so we managed to have a lengthy weekend, uh, an extended weekend. We spent some time at Georgetown. We went to the plantations in Maryland. 
we saw the chapel where our ancestors had worshipped. And that began to sort of bring things back together. I mean, it may seem unfathomable, uh, but it was almost as if we had to see this to really believe it. Mm-hmm. And so there were 44 of us just simply spent an extended weekend moving around trying to get some sense of. And what were those initial conversations with Georgetown like? Were they, was it tense? Because I know it, it's not an easy thing to talk about, especially if you're dealing with an organization that's, you know, predominantly white and a lot of, it's difficult for Catholics to have that conversation. So what was it like to, with the people you talked with at Georgetown? Well, part of it really was the formality of making the making the uh, arrangements, mm-hmm. and then as those things began to fall in place, then we began to know each other as people. Uh, I contacted a number of the professors who had been engaged in working through the whole process of how Georgetown was going to handle this, and they were quite helpful in sending us information and giving us access to the archives there. As a matter of fact, when we did go to Georgetown, the president had a reception for us, and they did a special audiovisual presentation for us and gave us copies. You know, the Jesuits, uh, wonderful record keepers, and so we had baptismal records, and they shared those, um, those things with us. And we began to know each other as as individuals, not as representatives. Mm-hmm. They're representing the Jesuits, our representing our, our families. And so we have continuing relationships with them now. And Georgetown formed this uh, this working group on slavery, memory, and reconciliation, correct? These are the people that you're in dialogue with most of the time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are the members of the working group? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what are your thoughts on how things have progressed since then? Because obviously, you know, these initial conversations are important, but what what are some of the next steps that have happened? Well, I think the most exciting thing that's happened now uh, is that the students at Georgetown have gotten a sense of what they as students can do to bring some sense of reconciliation between the descendants and not only Georgetown, but the students themselves. And so uh, just recently, the students did something that uh, has not been done in any university. They themselves have voted to pay what they're calling a reconciliation contribution, something that will go into a foundation to benefit the descendants of what they call the enslaved people, Mm -hmm. uh, GU-272. I've been immensely impressed by the compassion, the altruism. Uh, I read through the referendum and had some sense that the students really needed to move forward with this in the same way we ourselves need to move forward with it. They entitled their referendum a referendum to establish a new GU-272 legacy. And they themselves have taken it upon themselves to say that they want to write the past by doing whatever they can to help some of the descendants who, in many, many ways need help. Yeah. And what mm-hmm. are some of the other concrete um, steps that have been taken in the last couple of years besides besides this referendum on the reconciliation? Um? Yeah, that's the most recent activity. The 
students began in 2015, they began a protest when they once again discovered that Georgetown had historic ties to slavery. And apparently this would come up and students would graduate. And then people would forget. (laughs) Forget. So it came up about 2015. And, uh, and follow- th- was the focal point of that, I think, was there, there were buildings who still had the names of this, the priests yeah. who were involved in the yeah. sale, right? Yeah, so those students were, in a sense, outraged. They had come to a Catholic university to discover that we're here because of a slave sale. Um, and still honoring our buildings with the names uh, of the men yeah, who yeah. sold slaves. Mm-hmm. Which is no longer the case, right? No, so renamed. so right away, the, stu- the students had to sit in in the president's office, and uh, the first thing they did right away, they decided that we are going to change the names on two buildings that had been named for the Jesuits who helped negotiate the slave sale. I think they temporarily named them Remembrance and something. I can't Hope, remember maybe. the name, but they changed the names right away. And uh, they moved forward. Uh, there was some... A strong sense that the university should do something on behalf of descendants. And so following recommendations from the working group, they included the descendants in what they call the legacy category. Uh, I had they'd get preferred admission standards yeah, or something? I had okay. Air initially, yeah, I, well, I, well, I had some problems with the name because I thought in my own sense it didn't seem right that the descendants of slaves would be in the same legacy category as the descendants and offsprings of professors and alumni and people like that. It, there was just something off about that. But the category notwithstanding, it did permit the university to grant what they call legacy status to descendants, which meant that they would have some preferential treatment in the admissions I think the most moving thing to those of us who were firmly Catholic is that they also, in 2017, held what was called a liturgy of remembrance, contrition, and hope. And that brought together some 100 descendants or so and members of the Society of Jesus and Georgetown students and administration for a day of um, remembrance. And literature back well, at Georgetown. What was it like to have, you know, not just the com- your family or the de- the community of descendants that has formed since you learned of this history? What was it like to have Catholic leaders present in front of you and just kind of acknowledge this great evil and a- sort of ask for forgiveness? Well, what did that feel like for you? Well, it was um, it was a historic moment, uh, and uh, it was an unforgettable moment. I could see descendants were tearing up. Uh, Members of the administration were tearing up. Some of the Jesuits were tearing up. So um, it was a a bonding experience in in many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing that I was struck by um, in that liturgy is Father Tim Kosicki said that the Jesuits, they had they did ask for forgiveness, but they said they had no right to ask for forgiveness and that it was it was the descendants prerogative. What what timeline forgiveness may come on? Um, How do you do you do you feel ready to forgive the Jesuits or is that something you're still working through? Well, I'm still I'm still working 
through that myself. Uh, I've not spoken about it myself. Uh, some of the descendants are adamant that we need not stop here, that there are other steps that need to be taken. Uh, some of the descendants are interested in following through on one of the recommendations that was made by the working group is that some financial restitution be made. And part of what the students were doing in their referendum was to say, we've looked at some of these communities where the descendants live, and we want to go back and ask again that some sense of res financial restitution be forthcoming. Yeah. So in a sense, there's more penance left to do as part of the forgiveness, right? I think so. And... One of the things I myself have been concerned about is uh, spiritual repentance. It seems to me that there's space for the priesthood to render something in the way of a penitential prayer, uh, something uh, along the lines of what we have in New Orleans and the uh, Archdiocese of New Orleans, they have constructed what's called a family prayer that's said in the churches on mm -hmm. um, at all the masses. And that's a prayer about racism and violence. And it seems to me, given the violence that was rendered toward the, the families in 1838, uh, it would not be expecting too much to have the Jesuits say, we're going to do a penitential prayer. Uh, we're Include going, it at every Mass at Georgetown? Not just Georgetown, but in Jesuit churches throughout the country. I think that's the kind of reparations I would like to see. Uh, I don't know the extent to which the Jesuits have introduced the slave sale in their universities and high schools, but, you know, they're top-notch educators. And I think something could be done in the high schools and in the universities so that that becomes a part of living history. It too. feels essential that we be learning about this as part of the Jesuit mission, yeah. no matter if, where if we If memory are. is one mm -hmm. of the three pillars. Then. Yeah. And I think also it's... It's kind of difficult to, I know one in just in my own personal life, it's often difficult to have these conversations just outright. And I think maybe if that kind of space was introduced, then it would make, you know, white Catholics not feel uh, like scared to engage in that kind of dialogue. I think spiritual, the spiritual penance that you're, that you're mentioning can really move us toward mm -hmm. that, you know, mm -hmm. racial reconciliation mm -hmm. inside and outside of the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the situation of Georgetown is unique in some ways that there are the records and we can research them and find the descendants, um, which isn't always the case. But do you think it offers lessons for the wider country when it comes to uh, dealing with the legacy of slavery and working towards racial reconciliation? Well, a number of universities are doing that now. I think since this developed in Georgetown has become somewhat of a role model for them. I think there are close to 50 universities and colleges now, and they're united under a banner of universities studying slavery. And they have begun to set up websites. I don't think they're, I don't think they're tracing descendants the way 
that has been done at, at Georgetown. Some of the universities are establishing memorials on their campus to yeah, honor. I went to UVA, uh, and they're in the process That's right, of making a big that. memorial mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think the only two universities that have student reparations are what the Georgetown students are calling reconciliation. Uh, interestingly enough, is that their faith-based institutions, Georgetown is Catholic, and about the same time, the students at Georgetown were working on their referendum. The students at Princeton Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. they themselves have recommended that their university uh, prepare some form of reparations. I think that will consist of perhaps giving scholarships to students who want to come, establishing a black church studies program and things of that sort. So... Uh, uh, I'm intrigued by the fact that the two student bodies that have mm-hmm. taken action are those that have religion at their center. Mm-hmm. Now, this fund that was uh, sort of voted on by the students is, of course, it's non-binding, right? The university still has the final say on what they're, whether or not they're going to uh, employ that or something else. Are, are you confident that the university is going to accept the recommendations that the students voted on? Or and what would it mean if they don't or do something less than what the students voted on? Well, the university's board of directors, I think, will meet on that. I think their next meeting is in June. And they're in a quandary one way or the other. If you read the referendum carefully, the whole Jesuit spirit is there in the referendum. You know, the students have manifested a sense of generosity, uh, a sense of altruism, uh, a sense of compassion. When we think about the Jesuit notion of matches doing more, this is what the students want to do. So in many ways, the board of directors are going to be looking directly at a referendum there that touches on many of the values that the Jesuits hold dear. So uh, I, I don't have any idea of where they're, they're going to go with this. Uh, but it's clear to me that the students see themselves in many ways extricating the priesthood and Georgetown University from what Father Kaseki said, we have sinned. We need to make repentance, and the students are saying this is a way to do it. The whole notion of uh, slavery as America's original sin uh, has been repeated at Georgetown in a number of times, and I think the students are saying we're here to help bring redemption, so here's a way. And um, it really leaves the board of directors with a tough decision to make. Um, and I think, God forbid, even if these if the board doesn't um, approve the the initiatives by the student, I think it's been so encouraging to just see that students are taking this kind of initiative, you know, especially we as a country, we're trying to figure out if reparations are owed, what reparations should look like. And I know I've personally been just super inspired to know that students at a Catholic institution are like, hey, here's what this can look like, you know. Um, And I know I've been seeing like Fairfield University, they just started a slavery project themselves. And I think none of that would have happened if we hadn't seen what we saw at Georgetown. Um, 
But thank you so much, Anita. Um, yeah. we, we've got one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? It has to be one person. Could be a group. Could be, yeah. <laughs> could be more than one. We canonize groups in the church, right? Yeah. yeah. GU 272. Okay. That's 272 men, women, and children uh, that were sold by the Jesuits in mm-hmm. 1838. They're suffering. Uh, their continuation with the faith. Uh, in my own particular family situation, uh, we carried the name of St. Ignatius through my father, and it now exists in my family as a kind of testament to our own Catholicism. We have a nace in my family as either a first name or a middle name 11 times right now. Wow. So I would um, GU-272. All right. Saints GU-272. <laughs> Amen. Anita, thank you so much for, for being here, for your witness, for your activism. It's been really great talking to you. And if people uh, want to find out more about the GU-272, um, we'll put their uh, website and information in our show notes. Fine. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. episode is brought to you by the Catholic Travel Center, proud partner with America Media for six years, hosting pilgrimages to Ireland, Italy, Spain, and the Holy Land. Catholic Travel Center is the customized group pilgrimage specialist, serving the Catholic community for nearly 30 years. To organize your organization's next pilgrimage, contact Catholic Travel Center at gocatholictravel.com. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So this week I've got a consolation. Um, In previous episodes, I was talking about how I've been going to services or to Mass and realizing that I'm having a really hard time just being present and just having a lot of difficulty in my own prayer life. Um, This past weekend, I... Went up to the Catskills with my fiance and a few friends, and we had no Wi-Fi, no cell phone service. We had, like, Wi-Fi here and there. Um, But I was forced to just be completely present with the people around me and not just give in to the usual distractions that I I give in to. Um, And just kind of being able to kind of reset my prayer life in that kind of space just away from the city um, really kind of just gave me new energy. I know it sounds like a complete cliche, like the city girl goes up to the mountains and experiences, and experiences nature. nature and God. But did you um, encounter the God's creatures? Yeah, I did. I yeah. saw deer and all these wonderful animals that Asher would have loved. Uh, but I just came back, like I started the week with this new energy that I haven't had in my faith life in a while. Um, so that was the consolation. Oh, that sounds wonderful. What do you have, Ashley? I have a desolation this week. Um, So I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, having this experience on the train where I encountered someone who seemed emotionally and mentally distraught um, and just kind of like blocking it out and like not being able to even like stand near him. And so then I was on the train again last week coming back from an event 
And there's this man who was like in between the two trains and like had his feet up and was like threatening to jump off. And like no one else seemed to be like concerned that he would actually do it. But I had just like looked out and like made eye contact with him and was like, please don't jump. And he like came in to the train um, and I had like a box of food and I like offered it to him and he did not want the food. He just wanted money. And he like went up and down the train asking for money and no one was giving him money. And, you know, he walked by me again and I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I just really don't have cash. And he like got in my face in like a very threatening manner. And it was very like I was scared. Um, and after that experience, I was really just like left in this like feeling of hopelessness. It's like, I, you know, I didn't do anything that one other time and felt terrible about it. And now I tried to do something and it didn't work either. Um, and I was just like looking at this man and like saw no way that I could like bring any hope to the situation and was just kind of like left to sit with that feeling of powerlessness. So that, yeah, that was that's right. super hard. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. What do you have, Zach? I have a consolation. Uh, this past weekend, I was back on Loyalist campus where I went to school for a wedding. Um, this was sort of a unique situation where the bride uh, is one of my best friends and the groom is uh, my college roommate. Uh, so both people that I love really dearly. And sometimes you kind of have to just like you, you, you're at a wedding and you like are wondering why you feel so good. And this was unique in the sense that both of them were like really explicit in telling me that I was sort of like instrumental in like God working through me to like bring them together. Um, and it just hit me like a sledgehammer <laughs> and it caused a lot of tears. Um, and then there was this other moment where I was able to give them uh, communion at the, at the mass. Mm -hmm. um, and so just like really moving, especially as I, you know, feel like I'm helping them towards their vocation or God is helping them through me and both or both or whatever, especially as I'm preparing for my own. Um, that w just to be able to see God so clearly in, in those two um, was my consolation this weekend. Oh, that's beautiful. And I'm out of tears, so I'm not going to cry <laughs> anymore. I don't know. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Read the credits. <laughs> Judge Whitacle is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Judge Whitacle Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Please, we're only 41 away from 500 reviews. That, that would, would be, be great. That'd be great. <laughs> Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>